Ms. Ostapenko has no challenges remaining. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining, our final show for the 2023 U.S. Open on the finals, fittingly. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by Timani Carriol. Hello, Timani. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm back, in, back in London already. Yes, time flies, and so do airplanes, and you're back in London. And thank you for being on there with us after your long flight. I had a bit of an odd weekend, and I'll talk about this a bit in my viewing process, but I did watch the matches, just not completely and entirely live, both of them. But I am caught up and eager to talk about these two champions. Do you want to talk first, Tumani, about the men or the women? I feel like I have more to say about the women's side, but... Let's, let's go with the, 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 new, the new champion. Okay, the new champion being Coco Golf. Coco Golf yep. wins her first Grand Slam, the 2023 U.S. Open. Uh, Coco Golf, of whom much was heralded and expected ever since we were there. I first met Coco Golf when she was 13 and made the US Open Junior Final. Did an interview and story on her then and the age rule and stuff. And, and we both obviously with her memorably in Roehampton when she qualified uh, yeah. for Wimbledon in 2019. That was pre-pandemic, so it feels like even longer ago than that. Because, I mean, the pandemic sort of elongates time in a certain way. So that Coco Golf was already a known quantity pre-pandemic. And now she's won a Grand Slam. And it feels like a long time, but she's still only 19. A lot of things are about it remarkable. This was a very, very popular champion uh, for the tournament, for the crowd, for sponsors, advertisers, everything. I was watching this, the second half of this match in a hotel bar in DC, a bunch of friends who were in town this weekend, and there were all these women, mostly black women in their like 50s and 60s were there for some sort of convention or something, and they were going nuts for Coco, and there was this big like, you know, kind of like, she's everyone's, I think because people met Coco so young, there's this very like, I don't know, people feel like they're her aunt or uncle or parent or something. And there's this very protective celebratory nature about Coco. And it's, it's an interesting kind of unique thing that she has in a different way that other players have had. And in, in the way crowds, especially black crowds in DC, and other places in New York, including and in, in in fans across the country have embraced her. Anyway, all that is to say, she's a popular winner. She wins the US Open, coming back from a set down to beat Arena Sabalenka in the final what were your takeaways from this this match and this result? Start wherever you want. I mean, the first takeaway was that she's even quicker than I thought and imagined. Mm. You know, obviously Coco's defense has been one of her biggest assets since since she arrived on the tour, and and she's actually talked. I mean, the funny thing about all of this is that earlier this this season, when she was she was struggling, right? She she struggled in in the clay season. Lost six three six love to Paula Badosa in Madrid was you know mm. brutal loss. Went into the French Open with no confidence basically, and did well to to reach the quarters. But then she came to Wimbledon and lost it in the first round, and and just things things weren't going you know things weren't going well. And 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 earlier this year she talked a lot about how she, I mean the the great thing is that she she recognized you know that things weren't on the right path and she wanted to change them, and she really stressed like her intention of playing more attacking tennis and you know taking the initiative she said that when she was younger she played more attacking tennis and i mean certainly if you you know thinking back to that that Wimbledon run you know she was on the front foot a lot of the time well in some of the matches that's let we won't talk about the Herzog match with nine oh, million God. slices you know? <laughs> but yeah she, she but she said that after spending time on tour and playing against you know f fully formed grown women athletes I guess the the physical difference between them herself and and them led to her playing a more defensive style of play, and so she was very keen to play more attacking tennis, and she thought that was the key to her taking the next step in her career and becoming a, a Grand Slam champion. Fast forward to the U.S. Open final, she's playing against the the you know to be number one, the best player in the world, and she won it with her defense. And and I mean, to, really, it, it was you know from from Sabalenka's end, it was. You know, it was the the worst 
the worst version of Sabalenka in, in terms of just hitting herself off the court and not being able to make adjustments and seemingly just the moment, you know, just getting to her. And she couldn't... When we spoke earlier, I thought that she'd play freely right after after the semi-final and then mm-hmm. after game number one, two big, you know, things that have, it's, I guess, stressed us for her over the past few few years and this year. Yeah, she got she got tight. But a lot of that tightness was to do with Goff's defence. Um, as I said, she, she's always been quick, but that was... That was quite astonishing, just the amount of balls she got back, her anticipation. It was it was that mixture of of her just in at full flow in terms of her movement. Yeah. I mean, I, I I've very rarely seen a female player move as well as Goff did in that final. Really. Yeah. No, d- definitely. It was it was a bunch of thoughts on that. I mean, it was interesting. First of all, just seeing you know because obviously Coco has gotten a ton of, you know, next Serena comparisons or next Venus comparisons since uh, she was first on the scene, obviously beating Venus in her first slam main draw win and Wimbledon accelerated that. And she's been getting that kind of comparison a lot, but she was winning with defense. And it's interesting to sort of see, this is not a typically American way to win matches. I mean, Sloane Stevens also probably won her, at least her final, certainly against Keyes. It was a similar kind of matchup in a lot of ways where Keyes was the, the big hitter who was spraying and, and, and someone won that very easily. But it was interesting to sort of seeing this U.S. crowd getting really behind the defense and gasping for the defense. And that's not normally the American stereotypical way to win, maybe since like Michael Chang, you know, was the last sort of really pure defensive American champion on the men's or women's side. So the match wasn't, I mean, there wasn't, quality wasn't great for a lot of this match in the beginning. I mean, Sabalenka was winning in the first set, but started at some point in the set, she had three winners and 14 unforced errors in the first set and she was still winning yeah. so she was forcing a lot of errors obviously and there's other things that you know she's obviously winning points beyond that but it just it wasn't a sparkling tennis for sure but i think that coco found her her range and it sort of i think just by getting on that many balls it sort of increased her confidence and eventually she started being more assertive and a little at putting a little bit more giving time giving herself time and being more attacking and there was a stretch you know sabling had kind of let her back into it with a double fault on break point early midway through the second set that gave coco some momentum that she carried she got off you know Four one in the in the second and then closed it out from there, and then yeah, then she went on a roll up to go up four love in the third where she was just sort of really that was some of the best I've ever seen Coco play. That was the defense, but also she was hitting well, serving well, and things were clicking. That was you know for all the winning ugly talk that's happened with Brad Gilbert in her corner, that was winning pretty for that stretch. You know that was her actually things clicking and playing her best, not just winning with less than her best, but getting to show some of her best on this ultimate stage of the sport for her, which was very satisfying to see. So patchy match in some ways, but Coco had bright spots that showed why she's this champion i thought in in ways yeah. it was that i thought was was satisfying to see yeah and, and i think just just in terms of the matchup obviously been so much attention on on goff's forehand yeah i mean initially initially she struggled and in that first set her forehand was making errors and just it was broken down by sabalenka's pace and you know and, and weight of shot but by the end of the match <laughs> that that match was about sabalenka's forehand and how yeah. you know the the errors just flowed from it I'm so glad you mentioned that Bedosa match. I didn't want to gloss over that because you mentioned that in your in your first uh, talking about this. That was this year. That was only four months ago, basically. And it was a grim match for Coco. People didn't see this match. It was a match where Coco, based, where Bedosa was just hitting the balls to Coco's forehand and not even the hardest balls. And Coco just could not handle them. Coco was getting so exposed on that wing on her forehand. And Bedosa said, basically impressed what everyone could see. Like, it's really obvious that everyone knows the play on Coco now is headed to her forehand and she breaks down and she can't handle it. And to see her rebuild from that. And I talked to her when I was at a press conference before Washington. And that was her first press conference after 
her she'd exited Wimbledon and losing in the first round. She was sort of saying like I I'm accepting that I'm in a potentially rebuilding mode. Like I'm trying to you know I'm I'm gonna take things and I might not win a lot. Acknowledge that she was gonna be more sort of you know, about process about learning things about making herself more complete and more sturdy for the future rather than you know just trying to max out wins. And that's something that can be tough for players. And this is not really Coco's case per se, but maybe it's a little bit. But sometimes players who come from juniors, you can win in a lot of ways in juniors in a lot of inelegant ways you know a lot of like moon ball kind of stuff or junk ball or more defensive retrieving steadiness kind of stuff because players don't have the consistent power in juniors to beat that so, so there's different ways to evolve your game or whatever but anyway what getting to is that coco just did all this so much faster than expected i mean really with how low some of the lows were in the middle part of this year that potosa loss especially and then the result of losing to Cannon first round wimbledon where she wasn't awful but it was still a first round loss to a player who's ranked way below her Sidebar, Sophia Kennan beat both those players this year. She be, has beaten Sabalenka and Coco Golf this year. This is wild, wild uh, Kennan stat. <laughs> An enigmatic figure that she is on tour. Yeah, I, I was just really, really impressed that she that she turned around and kept winning this quickly. And yeah, once she got on track in Washington during that tournament, she has not really slowed down. She was the player of the summer. It's not almost unlike what, and it's obviously a very different part of his career, but remember 2013 where... Nadal randomly Nadal. showed up and just won Nadal. everything on U.S. hard courts. I mean, Coco won three of her four tournaments that year. Nadal won three of his three. But a similar kind of thing. It just sort of shows up and, and it's the best. And so it wasn't like a Cinderella run per se because she was the hot player. She'd been building this up. She had been working towards this in this short period. A lot of credit has gone and will go to her coaches, the new coaches during this time, Pereira and Brad Gilbert. And it is some, I'm sure they deserve credit for this as well. But also just it was a lot of things clicking uh, notably, they, she did not, Coco did not need any mid-match coaching. That was not what she was into. But sort of what I think people have said about Gilbert, and people can debate his role or not, I think what Andy Roddick said about him is he's good at making complex things seem simple. I think he just probably is good at sort of giving Coco a little bit of clarity as a communicator. If she has a lot going, and she can do so much on court, she can defend, she can attack, she can do this and that. And this time she just seemed to have a, a clarity in her game that wasn't always there, potentially. I think even Naomi Osaka yeah. said that about her at some point. She said that, like, she thinks Coco will be really good when she picks a lane, like that she's kind of, she'd be really good as an attacker or as a defender, but like kind of doing both and neither at the same time doesn't quite work. And I think this is yeah. Coco. It's not necessarily picking a lane affirmatively one way all the way. It was at least sort of having, knowing how to use both those modes uh, pretty, pretty effectively. As, as always, Coco said a, a lot of insightful and interesting things during her, the run and just during the summer about how, how things have changed for her and, I mean, one of them is that after the Wimbledon loss to Kenin, she said that was a period where she actually almost like began to question whether she was capable of of winning a slam. And mm-hmm. and and as you said, in in general, she thought that it, I mean, if she was going to win a slam, that it was going to take this rebuilding phase, and that she didn't expect to see significant changes until like next year. And so, in a way, it it seems like that actually probably took some pressure off her she wasn't going into these tournaments just like you know thinking she needs to do this and that you know she has, she focused on on the the process and on, on her game and, and etc and and that has really helped her to play more freely um brad gilbert and, and coach Pereira, who who doesn't get much hasn't gotten much of the credit it seems like they've allowed her to create well they've created a like just a, a, a really positive environment around her she, she again. She said that um, the, one of the first things Brad Gilbert told her was that she needs to just enjoy it more, just enjoy her life on tour and what she's doing. Yeah. And she, she said that surprised her, and she wasn't. She just that wasn't what she was expecting to hear. 
But as she's embraced that, you can just see how how freely she's playing on the court. You can, you know, I I, I don't know about how how it, it felt in Washington, but certainly you know being around her in Cincinnati and and then in New York, both you know in the press room, but also just behind the scenes, <laughs> there's bit definitely just seems to be just enjoying everything and it's showing on the court. Yeah, she doesn't have that, that sort of heaviness about her that a lot of times players who are these young people who of whom so much is projected and expected and, and predicted get in the sport when things don't come immediately. I mean, you could frankly put like Emiratu Kanu in this category of someone who has, you know, she obviously came very quickly out of nowhere and then won a slam and then had trouble living up to those expectations of sort of the attention and pressure of people thinking she could do this all the time. And that's been tough for her to watch. Even someone like, although he had a very positive demeanor about it, someone like Dimitrov, you know, who came on the tour very early was junior champ, baby fed, all these things. And you can see it in his, in his own way sort of wearing on him, even though he has a very wonderful disposition all the time. And I think the extreme example I talked about, and I did mention this with Coco earlier in the year was Capriati. Capriati was this player, you know, you know, Jennifer Capriati won her first tour match at 13 French Open semi and US Open semi that year at 14, I believe, or something like that. And she was doing great and she became like a top 10 player, not unlike golf. She was sort of at six and seven in the rankings, sort of like golf. And then she was plateauing and she just wasn't making it to slam finals, wasn't winning slams, wasn't winning the biggest tournaments like golf in this stretch. And it's really tough, you know, when you're that kind of player and, and the, you know, so much attention is on you, you want to keep going up. It can look it can look from a distance like this was a smooth road, you know, break on tour at 15 with this big boom. And then when you're first slam in 19, but it's been a lot of ups and downs and waitings and pandemic probably yeah. it's been a long time and a lot of disappointments and setbacks and feeling like you're falling short at different times in this. But Coco never seemed to really turn that into a sullenness or anger that we saw publicly. And a lot of that goes to her parents, obviously, I think, and we didn't mention them in her coaching team, but the way her dad stepped aside and stepped yep. literally to the yep. side, yep. out of the box, into the suite really, really gracefully and handed the reins to someone else for his for his daughter's coaching. It was great and still showing support. There's not there's no drama there, there's no rift, but just sort of saying like we need to take another step. And and that's something that a lot a lot of parent coach teams have a very hard time doing. There's lots of famous examples of this, you know, in men's and women's tennis, both. I'll I mean say, I'll say it's a pass, I'll just name yeah. it right now. It's somebody who's who's I think you yeah. think you're thinking that too is someone who's struggled with that exactly, and hasn't been yeah. able to do that. Apostolos is a lot he can learn from Corey Goff on that front probably. But yeah, it, it's just, it's not easy. And, and I also just, in terms of the positivity, Courtney fly this quote on Twitter too, I think, but the thing she said about what she took away from the French Open, I thought was really interesting. Yep, yep. It's like the quote from Coco about what she's learned from the French Open and the trophy ceremony particularly. Honestly, you know, the French Open moment, I don't know if they caught it on camera, but I watched Iga lift up that trophy and I watched her the whole time. And I said, I'm not going to take my eyes off her because I want to feel what that felt like for her and that felt like craziness today lifting this trophy and it doesn't it hasn't sunk in and I think it probably will maybe in like a week or so yeah because so many so many people would just sort of use it as like rage hate fuel fire like you know like seeing that you know we've seen some pictures of, of runners up seething in the background looking at the uh at the person hosting the trophy but for her to take it as a positive instead of saying like i am so angry i want this for myself sort of being like it'd be cool to have that kind of moment of positivity and use it as like trying as aspirational rather than as resentment or fire. i just think it's really indicative of coco and the positivity she's had that's made her so 
popular and that radiates i think on tv fans and certainly impressed talking to her like her attitude is just so she's such a thoroughly good egg that you're sort of wondering like why how is this possible like but it's yeah, it, yeah. It, we know we know her for long enough that it's not a, it's not an act it's it's really that's that's who she that's who she is that's who she has become and who she was raised to be and it's it's pretty real as far as i can tell yeah and regarding her father she in her interview with espn she talked about that i i, I wanted to ask her you know more about that after her press conference but you know there, there were i was not called upon yeah uh but yeah i mean this is another topic we're going to discuss but she'd seen the way people had talked about you know her and her father and that people were urging them her you know her father to take a step back um and he, but he did it in, in his in his own time and and she said it was his decision you know he said i can't do this anymore yeah. um but but i mean the crucial thing is that together they found the right people to for her to, to to guide her forward right and they surrounded themselves with the, the right people and that's been clearly a, a key aspect of her development and it's it obviously one of the funny things has been as, as you mentioned like seeing her father just in random parts of the stadium apparently mm-hmm. he was been so nervous that at times he's been taking a leaf out of richard williams book and just like pacing around the stadium you know outside of outside of the stadium on the tournament grounds but when she won the won the title who was the first person she saw and and embraced it was her dad right yeah but it felt almost symbolic in a way one of the other things i wanted to say is that in the end there was no real change to her forehand brett, brett gilbert mm. has talked to and coco have, have talked about how they, they stressed um footwork she's that they've worked hard on on changing her footwork trying to make her footwork more aggressive and giving her forehand more space and and things like that and they've kind of armed her with some cues, you know, when the when she's not feeling confident with her forehand on on the court. But they didn't just rush and and make some massive dramatic technical change to her forehand. And yeah, and and that's probably it's allowed her to build more confidence in her forehand rather than, you know, just thinking that there's something fundamentally wrong with it. And clearly, she's 19 years old and she has plenty of time and room to improve that shot and to make it more, even more effective. But to see how if how effective she's been without making any of those significant changes is incredibly encouraging for her future, really. What I was thinking about that, I was wondering that, is I was listening, so I watched this match sort of in this bar without hearing any of it and then watched it back in full with the commentary and stuff. And they were talking about, you know, Chris Everett was talking about, and she's, the Academy is a good through a person on grips and stuff. Talking about the various different things in Coco's game that that grip makes it tough to do. And I'm still wondering, you know, even knowing that she won this title, like, there still could be room for improvement. There still could be room for overhaul on this forehand and for making it is, you know, just because it won her a slam doesn't mean it's perfect on any level. And that's exciting, you know, like to know that she's still a work in progress um, and already gotten this far and can still get better. That's sort of my take on the forehand. I still think it should be a, um, during the off season. If it can be, you know, try some things. If it doesn't click, yeah. go back to what was working, but there's, I think there's room for improvement on that. And, Certainly other parts too, and all champions always are wanting to try to improve. And look at all the things that Djokovic, we'll get to him later, talks about, does so much better than he did in early parts of his career, especially the serve, for example. The serve is so good for Djokovic, that was not really a huge part of his arsenal in the first, you know, six, seven years of his career on the pro level, more or less. So there's always room to keep growing and evolving, and this is her first step, and it's it's pretty big. Also, it's interesting just in terms of how things, doing things out of order. It's surprising that Coco got a single slam before her doubles, considering how much doubles success she's had. That the singles yeah. slam came first, and she's doubles went number one next week. This week now, which we recorded this number three in singles. I would just say, in terms of her journey this summer, I think the Svantec win 
was huge. The win in Cincinnati, even though she didn't play Schumacher in New York, that for me was when she was like, okay, this is a this is a real turning point because she was zero and seven yeah. against Schumacher and had those matches had not been close for the most part, and for her to step up in a big stage against Schumacher, who was pretty informant and win a tight match against her, I, uh, that had to be such an achievement unlocked that sort of set the whole the whole ball rolling. A couple other sort of miscellaneous thoughts here on this tournament on this men- women's final. I guess really, I think Mary Jo Fernandez is a really good commentator. I think she's she's very solid at that. I think it's crazy that the wife of Coco's agent is doing the emceeing for the trophy ceremony with no disclosure of this <laughs> at all. Like her household profited hugely from this result. Literally, she can get new cars and homes and whatever because Coco won this match. And there are just so many other <laughs> options. I think Chris McKendry did a great job in the men's final as the MC. And just, you know, there's something to be said for, for journalism neutrality or appearance of it. It just doesn't have to be this way. I just want to, so I, yeah, I just, quick, that's one of my little notes. I scroll down, like, why is this happening? This is, this is silly. I don't know if you noticed that too, but I was struck by that. Yeah, 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 certainly. And that, uh, I mean, there's also um, conflicts with Brad, Brad Gilbert, her coach. Yeah. Also an ESPN analyst. And I mean, with, with every, you know, so many other players, this is tennis. Tennis 101, there will be conflicts of interest. Yeah, but that was almost like more of like a USTA choice, I felt like, on some level, probably, who did the ceremony. For me, that was like more... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was more galling to me. Regarding ceremony, I, I, I agreed Christine McKendry did a good job, and I still just think that winners and losers' speeches should yeah. be speeches and not interviews. And no matter how good the journalist is, no matter how skillful they are, no matter how whether they ask the right questions or not, just give give the players the mic. They they've been do it. They do yeah. this at tournaments all the time. And I mean, in both of those, the the men's and women's tournaments, maybe both of the players at some point just asked for the mic because they had they have all these thoughts, you know, running around in 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 their head, and yet the order that they disclose yeah. them in is, is being dictated by someone else. It just it's their business. And let, the, let them go, because they're going to take it interesting places. And this is also something I cover. Um, I don't know if you've heard on this show, but you can actually pre-order my biography of Naomi Osaka. And one pre-order of it. it. Yeah, you should pre-order it. It's, it's, I think people are enjoying it so far, and you can pre-order it. And pre-orders really help a lot if you're a local bookseller online, wherever it is, link in the description. Uh, tell me you did on NCR Twitter, and I'll thank you, because I'm still locked out of my Twitter, still working on that. Yeah, but one of the things to talk about is in the 2018 U.S. Trophy Ceremony, which is very infamous, both Naomi and Serena get asked these sort of opening questions, and... Serena explicitly says, like, I'm not going to do questions. Like, just I'll talk and I'll do my thing, whatever. And Naomi's similar. And, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And they players take interesting places, interesting to see where they go with these things. And uh, Coco had this part in her her speech uh, that she clearly had planned, I think, mm-hmm. about thanking people who didn't believe in her. So let's play that, that clip. Honestly, thank you to the people who didn't believe in me. Um, I mean, like... A month ago, I won a 500 title, and people said I would stop at that. Uh, two weeks ago, I won a 1,000 title, and people were saying that was the biggest it was going to get. Um, so three, like, three weeks later, I'm here with this trophy right now. Um, so, the t- <laughs> You know, I tried my best to carry this with grace, and I've been doing my best. So honestly, to those who thought we're, who we, those who thought who were putting water on my fire, you're really adding gas to it. And now I'm really burning so bright right now. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I, you know, I enjoyed this. I enjoy the sort of, the sort of pettiness of this. And it was fact-checking. This doesn't pass even a basic fact-check. No one was doubting her while her stock was rising after she won Washington and Cincinnati. No, no, almost no one. Maybe some person did tweet this once. But no one was saying, you just won your second tournament out of the last three. That's it for you. 
Like, there were doubts when she lost to Badosa. There were doubts when she lost to Kennen. But the way she phrased it about how it was while she was climbing in this very recent history, that's when the doubts came. That I called BS on, but I don't care. Because the general tone was was lovely and funny. But but I, I guess, like, the counterpoint would be that, yeah, um, yes, no, no serious person was doubting her at this moment. But she sees many unserious people. A lot of people, people are on, unserious. On her, yeah, on, on her, on her Instagram, yeah, and and she's she's nineteen years old. She's she's, I mean, as, as she kind of conceded finally, because you, you know she in the past she'd say like I, I I I've deleted Twitter from my my account and you know I'm not reading it. But but here she kind of embraced it. I wish she had started re- saying names. I wish she had started saying names. Yeah, that's so funny. Because I think it's also instructive for tennis Twitter people that people like. I think people talk about tennis players on social media. This is a whole different conversation. I don't want to get too deep into. But kind of like they're like fictional people on like a TV show sometimes. But these are yeah. real people who are living very isolated lives a lot of times and have a lot of time on the internet. And this is such an all-encompassing thing they've been doing their lives since they were three, four, five years old. And it's a huge part of their identities. And of course, they're going to like look into what people are saying about them and their sport. And they're all very aware of what's going on on social media about them, about each other. They might act like they're not but they pretty much always are, especially about themselves. And if they don't look or searching their own names directly and responding and giving it away who they are, which some of them do do sometimes, and some of them in Canberra specifically, I do think that, you know, a lot of them are doing that, or at the very least have, like, friends or parents or whoever who are doing this for them and are telling them stuff. Like, it's a small world. Tennis, the tennis chatter sphere is a small world. And just know that players are likely to see what you say, for better or for worse. So, right, if if you give a crap about the conscientiousness and kindness of that right with that in mind it is a responsibility and that goes to my whole sort of rants i can say about you know people making up quotes and those getting believed immediately too just because it's sort of yeah anyway i agree with those, those are sometimes funny <laughs> but but i mean it's also instagram right and she's re- she reads the comments and i mean people have been talking about her positively and negatively since she was so young yep and i mean as as you know no matter how many how many how many times the positive comments out, outweigh the negative ones? Those negative ones sting. That they, oh, yeah. they're the ones that stick in your your head, and they're what you remember. To me, one of the most interesting things she said was that even up in, that she was reading the comments up until ten minutes before her her first ever U.S. Open final, and, and that they were giving her fire. You know, they they kind of motivated her, um, which I mean, it works. So, so great stuff. But I mean, I mean, my my overall point is that. People have not been criticizing her over the past month or so as, as she's won. That was my one fact check. It was just saying the way that she actually framed it is like, I won a 500 and they said, that's all you'll be. They said, I won a thousand, that's all you'll be. There's big picture criticisms for her that have happened lots of times when she's Owen Seving and Shiantek and whatever. But this particular one, I was like, this is not your yeah. strongest argument, Coco Golf. It's a yeah. nice rule of three presentation in this in this thing that clearly you thought out and it was good. And I'm not, <laughs> there's so little knock about her. I was just like, this is the one thing that's where like, Okay, whatever you want, you get <laughs> you get some poetic license here. I a couple other thoughts on just winning. I was watching this the broadcast back and the the custom Rolex ad. I don't know if you saw this. It, it rolled right after she won. Why do they? Was that the Rolex? One of the many Rolex ads with like a posh British person narrating. I don't remember who was narrating it, but anyway, all I know is it was one that was okay. Coco focused and was on her winning and just made me 
think like my god all the ads that must have been ready to roll for serena winning these slam finals that didn't ever oh see a light of day there must have been so many i was just that was my immediate thought that was a little sad uh, a couple other things i think three million dollars given the economic pull of this tournament is low i'm gonna go against the grain and say champions should be paid more at these tournaments just putting that out there i think it's too low Every, every, or do, do you think everyone should be paid more, but particularly when, I mean... <laughs> I, I think only... we should have a radical restructuring of tennis pay and, like, get rid of most prize money and just make it a salary-based thing. I don't think you should get $81,000 for showing up and losing, and that makes no sense. I think you should be getting paid based on your ranking and stuff like that. Um, okay. I think it incentivized... I mean, we saw, what, you know, who was that guy who played Medvedev who wasn't... Uh, but Balash, and there are a couple other players who, like, weren't clearly... clearly weren't ready to post stuff at the tournament, but still show up and played, and took their checks. I just think the incentives are wrong for that. But anyway, I'm just saying $3 million is is low for the amount of, of money this thing pulls in. I think it could be higher. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, obviously, you know, over the past, well, let's say six years or so, there's been a restructuring of the prize money, particularly since COVID, I guess. And yeah. With, I mean, I'll say it, like with, with the, the PTPA and, and things yeah. like that, with more money going to, you know, the first, the first rounds. PTPA talking about that. Not actually doing anything about it, but talking about it, yes. Yeah, but yeah, but but like there's there's more money going to the the, the first right. You know, yes, couple it's been of the trend. Rounds. It's been a trend for years. Yeah, I'm pretty sure when Sloan, you know, did that whole, you know, during her trophy ceremony, I think she won three three million. Yeah, it was bigger. So I think it was bigger. Yeah, it's, or at least three million. I'm sure it was at least three million. Yeah, I'm just saying. I think that that I think that it's it could be more, and not that anyone's crying for Coco and her earnings because they're going to keep going up and up and up. And it's interesting to see how she does in the sort of Forbes ranking list and stuff in the next edition because she should be. She was already kind of yeah. the poster girl for this tournament. To back it up with the title is is a big, big payday. Surely, incredibly, she made the the tacky prize money moment that they do at the U.S. Open. She saved it by thanking Billie Jean King. <laughs> I want to talk about that. You were on my, you were on my notes too. So that was really definitely done. For Billy, you know, it is definitely over. It's also tacky. It's pretty like there's not money being exchanged, I feel like, as well. I feel like that's also dishonest. That's my American point of view there. But what I think about, I think the U.S. Open show, foregrounding equality and equal pay is a selling point for marketing. It was, it was a marketing campaign for this tournament this year, the foregrounding of equality. Yeah. Be on all the oh, yeah. And stuff. This is, this is, it's good marketing and it's a good sales point. And there's so much to learn from that for all these, you know, against equal pay bros who are saying like, oh, you know, revenue, da, 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 da. The fact is, whether it's, you know, virtue signaling or not or whatever, there's, it's, it's, it's something that people cheer for. You see like the, they say equal pay and there's a cheer from the crowd and they show like Charlize Theron fist pumping and whatever on, on the broadcast when this happens. And like, it's, there's a lot to learn from that. As tennis, as there's merger talk floating, who, I mean, who knows what's happening with tennis and Saudi Arabia and all this sort of stuff. And there's a lot of moving pieces now, but I just think I want to hit hard, cynically or not, it works as a marketing thing. It's a very effective thing, and it's more effective than the cost of paying the women equally. That's what I'm saying. It's money well spent, equalizing the prize money, is what I think. And they, I'm, I'm pretty sure they made, they made a hell of a lot of money on, on that Billie Jean King merch this year. Yes. I wanted to, to give one of those bags to, you know, fat family friends, and they were sold <laughs> out in days. Yeah. I was, it was funny. I was actually thinking about getting one of the posters, and then when I was there, I was like, I've seen this poster enough for my life. I don't need to look at this poster yeah. anymore. It's yeah. so everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about Sabalenka, actually, much at all, what this loss means for her, but she gets number one. I, we talked about her in the semifinal show, too, and that was her bigger match, obviously, the Keys win and stuff, and everything was impressed about her. This was a disappointing match for her. I think she leaves still with relatively spirits high. I hated, hated the way they showed that video of her behind the scenes breaking her racket, like, mm -hmm. kind of half-heartedly. Yeah. 
I thought that was an incredible invasion of privacy. They did the same thing with Stritzova and Vondrosova crying. That was also seemed like some like kind of hidden camera kind of thing. I, I think all that's really gross. And I think players should absolutely be going ballistic about that. I think that's awful. And I wrote a story about this in Australia a couple yeah, years ago yeah. when they had the, the corridor cameras that were catching sorts of hidden moments. So you've seen it even like worse if, if Sabalenka is in an empty room, as far as you can tell, and it's being recorded and, and cut for social media. I think that's just that's awful. Um, very strong reaction against that. Also strong reaction when it comes to Sabalenka about Dave Portnoy showing up, founder of Barstool Sports. Let's fucking not. Let's not engage with this. Let's not pretend like this is cute or fun or a great get for tennis. Have some self-respect, tennis. You see yourself and all these wonderful celebrities and the not-so-wonderful celebrities who are showing up time in, time out. You are A-list. You don't need to be so thirsty. You don't need to be paying out, to, whether it's the Saudis, whether it's Barstool, whatever other nonsense shows any interest. Don't Play hard to get. Have some standards. Don't be such a an attention whore as a sport that you need to debase yourself with sidling up to these unsavory creatures like Dave Portnoy. And the tennis channel had him on other tennis things were like promoting him there it's a lot i'm not talking about sad herself i'm just saying everybody like sort of like support night stop you're better than that i hope i want you to be better than that enough that's my thought on that i, I mean I, I fully agree i don't think i don't think we are tennis is better than that but i agree uh, i want it to be better than that i want it to be better than that i know it's not Speaking of getting better, let me play, finish this out with a uh, first of two original songs we played in this episode from NCR singer-songwriter correspondent Dan Byrne. He wrote one about uh, Brad Gilbert. So here's that. We'll get to the men. I need Brad Gilbert to be my musical coach. He'll say, you're better than Dylan. You're better than the Beatles. Taylor Swift is toast. He'll give me nicknames like Danimal. The burner, senior thumper. I need Brad Gilbert to be my musical mentor. I need Brad Gilbert to coach me when I'm cooking in the kitchen. Your pancake flipping technique is awesome, is bitchin'. You're the finest chef, dude, since the dawn of Homo sapiens. Julia Child, Betty Crocker should just hang up their aprons. He cracked the code for erotic and Agassi who was loco and now it seems Brad Gilbert has cracked the code for Coco. Why shouldn't he crack the code for me with a racket or a guitar or a fine slicing knife? I could use Brad Gilbert to coach me through life. Dan for that. Uh, let's get to the boys. Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, wins this tournament. He wins three of the four Grand Slams this year. He made the final Wimbledon. I think in terms of percentage of sets won, is this the closest anybody's come to winning a mm-hmm. all four slams since yep. Sefi Graf, which came one set short in the end. Although obviously for pressure and stuff, it's not the same if you drop an early early slam in terms of the pressure on, in New York would have been way more immense had he been going for all four. He might have lost to Lazo Jerry or whatever, but he's the guy. He won three or four this year. He's won seven of the last ten slams he's played. Obviously not kind of the various ones he got deported from or couldn't enter in the U.S. He's he's the guy. He's the number one officially in the rankings again, and he might not hang on to it because he's going to play a pretty light schedule potentially in the fall. So if Alcaraz picks up more points, it's possible that Alcaraz could pass him. He has, he has a big cushion, though. Djokovic does, yes. Yeah, but I'm saying yeah. that Alcaraz has some runway potentially because Alcaraz didn't play much in the fall either. And if, if Djokovic yeah. says he's not going to play between, I think he said between Djokovic, uh, Davis Cup and the finals, I think maybe, or Bercy, 
like, I don't know, there's a little space anyway. And, and Knockhart has nothing to defend in Australia that's going to get into next year and stuff. So yeah, I don't know yeah. how long he'll hang on to it, basically. And Djokovic has said it's not really his goal to get number one anymore. He's, he's slam-focused in that, that show. He's winning 24, uh, pulling out the jacket for 24, which was almost certainly made for Wimbledon, <laughs> the white jacket. But it's, it's good <laughs> that it's still usable. This match was not great. There was I think there was only one. I thought it was interesting, actually, looking at all eight singles finals from the Grand Slams. I think they were all equally kind of good as pairs. But you have to divide the share of goodness between the men and the women kind of unevenly each time. Like, for example, at the Australian Open, the women's final was incredible. And the men's final was uh, it sits past Djokovic one, which is not interesting at all. And, and Djokovic won it easily. And the men, women's final was amazing. French Open, uh, women's final was, again, great. Men's final, nah, not so much. Wimbledon, opposite. Men's final, amazing. Women's final, tough to watch. And U.S. Open, women's final was pretty good. And men's final was, eh. It's okay. It's not great. But, it was, you know, anyway, there's a kind of pendulum thing that I think was happening there. This match, Trish won the first set fairly comfortably. They played an incredibly long second set. That's an hour and 40 minutes. People talking about how long, like, Oppenheim or whatever is. This was longer than that for a three-set match. These matches are too long. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a problem. 100-minute long second set. Uh, Medvedev has a set point. Uh, where he gets to look at a pass. Trish is covering the net in the middle. Medvedev doesn't go down the line. He goes at the middle. And hits it right back at Djokovic. Djokovic gets it back. And that was the turning point of the match, as Medvedev acknowledged in his press conference. Oh, regrets for sure. Um, Should have won it. Should have won it. But uh, sometimes tennis is not that easy. Uh, passing for sure down the line, not cross. But, uh, you know, you have two, two choices and I chose the wrong one. Um, in general, yeah, second set was the best set I played and I didn't win it. So that's why kind of... It's normal that the match went the, that way because first and third, uh, he was kind of better and not much to say. Second, if I would win it, maybe could have been a different game. And then, yeah, Djokovic goes up 3-1 in the third. It's kind of over. Yeah, and then he wins. And then he celebrates, and he's won three of the four. He gets to 24. He is ahead of Serena now for most men or women open-era title, well ahead of Nadal and still climbing potentially. Where do, you, where do you think he goes from here? I mean, this was at the Slams, his best year ever, technically. Um, in his career. Amazingly, at 36, he's the oldest US Open champ. We don't talk about his age enough, I feel like, because I don't know if we have kind of age fatigue or whatever, but he's so much older than everyone else in men's tennis in a way that hasn't been the case before. Like, he's like an island, a gray island in the sea of youth, and he's still still the best. What what do you, how do you sum up his year, and where does he go from here? As you said, he's, he's clearly the best player in the world, and there's not really any, it doesn't, I mean, at the moment, it doesn't seem like any anyone is capable of touching him Aside from if he faces Alcaraz, and if if that doesn't happen, then yeah. But I mean, if it if it happens, and obviously they're they're, they're building a, a great rivalry, and 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 he's he kind of mentioned he mentioned that as well in his press conference. But against anyone else, he just clearly has the upper hand, both in terms of as a tennis player, and but also as the, the mental edge, and you know that there are scar the the scars are deep. I do think it was just, I mean, this was a tough, difficult task for Medvedev because of how well he played against Alcaraz in the semi-final. It was yeah. n- obviously not on that level, but it, it's kind of reminis- reminiscent of the days when you had to go through two two big three players. Yeah, A player like Medvedev can get up for one of them and, and play their best tennis there, but can you do it two matches in a row in, in the final rounds of a Grand Slam? It's very difficult. Yeah. So on, Med- on Medvedev quickly, if you can just sidebar on him quickly, I think that his tournament was great and that he, you know, what he did against Rublev in those hellish conditions in the quarterfinals already could have had him totally cooked. So the turnaround he made from that situation to go out and beat Alcaraz, peaking, 
is enormous and like just nothing to be like he proved himself as number three he's number three solid number three and that's what he got out of this and yeah in this match with Djokovic I don't I gotta say I don't think the Djokovic Medvedev matches are that great it's a little bit for me like the Djokovic Murray matches just stylistically I thought they're both kind of trying to do a bit of the same thing it was not the sort of it was more interesting to you seeing watching Djokovic play like someone like Shelton for example just in terms of the the contrast and styles for me, the Medvedev Djokovic was not uh, putting those two pieces together as a puzzle. Didn't make a picture I particularly enjoyed. So I watching the match, I was not sort of. I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that or not. But I was not sort of thrilled by this chess match between the two of them. I I mean definitely you know, the the rallies are, are long and they're gru- gru- grueling and and difficult and physical. But, but in 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 some ways, I I enjoy the the tactical tactical aspect of it and and the fact that I mean primarily I tweeted I, I, tweet, I joke, like jokingly tweeted about it but when when Medvedev comes up against um well mainly Alcaraz and Djokovic his opponents turn into seven volleyers and mm-hmm. and in 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 that you know epic second set against Djokovic that was really how Djokovic survived it was so long just because so many of the games were were, were extended to juice and were just battle every game was a battle and it started with with Medvedev just trying to hold on and stay in the match and then at, at three all in in the set right at the halfway point it just suddenly shifted and Djokovic was badly struggling physically with those long rallies and uh, and just couldn't couldn't really keep up with with, with Medvedev in, just in terms of his stamina and so even more so than before, it's, it's um, Djokovic has always used serving volley as a tactic against Medvedev and mm-hmm. his deep core positioning. Um, he did that really well in um, Astana, I think, last last year. And I mean, he's done it quite quite a few times. But here, like, it really saved him. The second half of that that set, you know, it, suddenly he was he was struggling in his return games, faced a break point at three four, and came up with just a stunning like four. Uh, I think it was a, a four and half, half volley drop volley and finish the, the game with two two more great volleys um and, and then that that point the the decisive point really it was a seven volley medvedev should have you know hit, hit his back end done line into the the open court his passing shot but i mean Djokovic again uh, seven volleyed and forced him to make a decision and he couldn't do it so one of my main takeaways which i mean it, it's quite it's, it's something we've known for a long time no, it's just just the the layers that Djokovic has to his game and what he can call upon. And you, you mentioned that his service improved, and that's the, the same with his, his volleying yep. over the years, and and how he's able to draw upon that, and and how that's the difference. And particularly when when you look at two two, day, two days earlier when Alcaraz was, I think Alcaraz seven volleyed, well, so Alcaraz came to the net twenty uh, forty four times, and I think he seven volleyed something like was it was it was a, a crazy amount, maybe like twenty twenty two seven volleys. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, he his wide serve isn't as 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 effective. He didn't volley as well, and the, he and then you see Djokovic, who just everything was crisp when he needed it to be. But yeah, um, overall, it just it, this is just reinforced his dominance. And uh, yeah, he's 36 years old. He's 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 the oldest U.S. Open champion now. If he if he keeps on going, you know, if he's if he wins the U.S. Open next year, he'll be the oldest Grand Slam champion. Yeah, if he wins any Grand Slam after U.S. Open 2024 or later. He gets the yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and it, 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 I mean, it partly doesn't feel like that because um, I mean, n- no, no shade here, but he still has a full head of hair. Yes, <laughs> he still <laughs> really. He, his he face doesn't... looks older. His face looks a lot older, but his, the hair is yeah, very his, thick his, and lustrous for sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but and he's still, but also like he, he's still 
he's still moving incredibly well. He doesn't. Yeah. He hasn't really. Certainly not. Not in his physical peak. And and I, I agree with people who there's often like the the narrative that he's better than ever. I don't. I don't necessarily buy into that. I think he's developed his game to kind of patch up for aspects of his game that aren't as good as they were in his peak and for example the staying in those long rallies that he kind of lived for when he was younger yeah but he's i mean he's just he's still just awesome and still just constantly improving and he, he talked about that in in his press conference about just how how that improvement has been you know he he's still today to this point still looking for ways to evolve his game and and improve and yeah. and and he's won 24 slams so <laughs> let's let's hear some clips from Djokovic and press and also one from his his coach on how far he thinks he'll go another finish line in sight way beyond the 2024 US Open literally on a weekly to monthly basis uh, in my approach to training to recovery to mental training uh, there's always something that I'm trying to add so that I can up my performance in my game, uh, you know, at least for a few percent. And it's, it's a constant process of trying to get better and trying to implement certain things that work for you and, and finding that formula. And when you find it, you know, the biggest, I feel like one of the biggest lessons I've, I've learned probably mentally throughout my career is that, you know, even if you find a formula that works, uh, it's not a guarantee, and actually, most likely, it's not going to work the next year. Uh, you need to reinvent yourself uh, because everyone else does. Uh, and as a 36-year-old competing with the 20-year-olds, uh, I probably have to do it more than I have ever done it in order to keep my body in shape, in order to be able to recover uh, so that I can perform on the highest level consistently. Uh, my goal was always at the beginning of the season to try to win all Grand Slams. You know, I would definitely sign right away the paper if somebody told me you would win three out of four and play Wimbledon finals. <laughs> there is a little regret that I didn't win the Wimbledon finals, but look, uh, in, in the end of the day, I, I, you know, I have so much more to be happier and content with than, than actually to regret something. So um, I'm going to keep going. And, you know, I feel good in my own body. I still feel I got the support of my environment, of my team, of my family. Yeah, occasionally asking myself, why do I need this still at this stage after all I've done? You know, how long do I want to keep going? I do have these questions in my head, of course. Uh, but knowing that I play at a, such a high level still and I win the biggest tournaments in a sport, yeah, I don't want to get... Uh, rid of this sport or I don't want to leave this sport if I'm still at the top, you know, if I'm still playing the way I'm playing. You know, players come and go, it will be the same kind of destiny for me, you know. Eventually one day I'll, I'll leave tennis in about 23, 4 years uh, <laughs> and, uh, and there's going to be new young players coming up. So till then, you'll, I guess you'll see me a bit more. He's planning to play Olympic Games in Los Angeles, so uh, <laughs> when is, it's 2028, so yeah. Yeah, those LA Olympics are in 2028. Djokovic would be, I think, 41 <laughs> when those happen, and it sounds completely reasonable because, again, who knows what kind of injury potentially could befall him or you know, stop a career early. He could even have something like what happened with Isner this year where he had a little few injuries, but just sort of the end came very quickly for Isner after being a top 20-ish guy for a long time. Just 
suddenly runs out of out of steam yeah. and falls out of top hundred. And Djokovic is a better player than that. But it, something you never know when time's going to catch up to you. Basically, all I'm saying. I mean, it, even Federer. I mean, he he was yeah. doing incredibly well, and then suddenly he he ran up ran up off for his kids, and everything changed. Exactly. So yeah, it, it can happen at any time, really. I mean, even. I, I guess it's even even obviously what Nadal's going through now. He's had a, a many more injuries, but yeah, it's, it, things can happen quickly. But at the same time, it just yeah, no, again, no one aside from Alcaraz seems remotely close right now. And and he's and, and given that Djokovic Djokovic said, um, I mean, one of the I think his best com- comments during the week was that he, he sees himself playing here until the younger players start kicking his ass. Re- yeah. That's a quote, kicking his ass regularly. At the big grand tournaments and the grand summer events, that's not happening now, and that doesn't seem like it's going to happen for a while yet. So that's the thing that Djokovic fans, Djokovic fans, just talk a lot when they're when they were obsessed with Federer and how Federer was get more attention, and how Federer had like a weak era early in his career. They point to a lot of times. This is Djokovic's weak era. This is when Djokovic is racking it up against players who are not the big three, to put it mildly. You know, where he's beating, I mean, respectfully to these guys, he played Tommy Paul and Ben Shelton in the slam semis this year. Like, those are pretty soft draws by any traditional definition. And he won them, and he's beating everybody. And so it's not really a question of, oh, is he getting lucky or getting easy draws? Even if his draw at this point was certainly favorable. Yeah, he's the best, but also still the field is not at its best. And this is him sort of running up a score while he can, and all credit to him for that. But I think that is what it is yeah. in timing. Yeah. It's opportunistic. I was interested being away from the tennis at this in this people in dc and having a lot of people and ask me like what i thought of the u.s open or who's going to win and i would say djokovic for the men obviously when i was slamming the men and the people people okay there was this thing i'm trying to make this as, as non-hatery sounding because it's not from that place at all people actually pay what to say about djokovic are the thing when Chris Fowler was doing the broadcast and said as the the crowd was cheering him at the end that was love was raining down on Djokovic. That's not it. That's not what's happening here. There is immense respect for Djokovic. And when I rewatch these matches, I watched the women's final after the men's final. I, I've watched the men's match mostly live and then finished it and then went back and watched the women's start to finish. The sounds in the stadium for Coco Golf were completely on a different level from the first game than anything that Djokovic got in the entire match. It was a completely different situation. Obviously, she's American, and there's different crowd and crowd support. But Djokovic, I don't know. I still think there's this... I think it's more interesting to me than love. It's much more interesting to me than than love, his relationship with, with sort of tennis fandom and traditional people who have been reticent to accept him or begrudgingly accepting him or not accepting him or resenting him or whatever it may be. Djokovic has won it by sort of this respect, by ultimate force of will and results. And and it's it's not love. It's not like he's not universally beloved. I know he has fans, and the fans exist, and they're not all Serbian. And a lot of them are, but they're not all Serbian. And you know they're there. But I it, I was shocked just again in D.C. by how many people kind of went out of their way in a way that you get in Australia sometimes. With when you mentioned Kyrgios or Tomic, people go out of their way to tell you they don't like immense tennis right now, and it's Djokovic. And crowds celebrate him, celebrate him, his what he's done, and give him his props. For, for what he's doing but I think it's still I think it's I think it's still worth noting to me that he's like n- not this universally acclaimed guy I think it's much more layered than that still I think it's more interesting people still love the US Open people still love tennis and Djokovic if you want to enjoy those events at the late stages you got to learn to like Djokovic because he's the flavor of the month of the year of the decade and you better learn to like it because it's him and I, to me that's just what it is and I was just struck again like watching the men's final and switching to the women's and I was like wow this sounds completely different 
even for Sabalenka, Sabalenka, I think, is a lot more affection in her own way than Djokovic gets traditionally from fans. I don't know. I, I just think, I just think it's, I just think it's, I think, I thought that it was being really unnuanced the way they were talking about him just getting this love. And I was like, it's not, it's more complicated than that. It's more interesting than that. It's still, I, I think it's so fascinating. I remember saying in 2020, there were three players who you could like write a book about their year. And one of them I did write a book about, Naomi Osaka. Uh, the other one was Novak Djokovic, who had a fascinating 2020 as well. The third one was Diane Yastrzemska, who no one's writing a book about anytime soon, I don't think, but she was also fascinating that year. From photos to songs to, to suspensions to all sorts of stuff. It was great. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that next. What an insane sport. But you can pre-order the Naomi Osaka book now in the meantime and encourage, it'll help bolster some Diana Shumska pitches in the future. Simani, what do you think about, about Novak Djokovic where he stands sort of with the, uh, with the public at this point as he runs up the score on the record books? I think, as you said, I think his, where he stands is, is in, in a far more interesting interesting place than, than the yeah. than, to be honest, his top two rivals, um, yeah. really. Because it is complicated. It is, I mean, he, he's coming back from, after not, you know, obviously he wasn't, in in the United States because he couldn't enter the country after refusing to take COVID vaccine and the DQ. He also got DQ'd since his previous U.S. Open title. And, and the DQ, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's been a lot. Yeah. And that, yeah. And I don't know. I, I think for for he's he's been accepted. You know, the, the crowds were supportive of him. It wasn't a big issue. I think like like in Australia, but it. I think just there's so much about. Djokovic's story and and you know his his comments, the decisions he makes, and and his game and I don't, everything that just just makes it a lot more interesting to me. And there's a lot more to unpack. He's super fascinating. That's the thing. Like he is, he's the most fascinating guy in men's tennis in a long time. And and again, he's super layered and would make for a great book someday for someone. Yeah, he's he's it's it's super interesting. Yeah, so I just wanted to say that. Like, I still think it's interesting. I still think that he. And he said he made some comments. I think I'm guessing in Serbian that got circulated. Today. I saw Sasha Osman tweeting about how he said he would have been considered one of the greatest more sooner if he had not been Serbian. Him and someone from a Western country who had been taught in the greatest conversation earlier, almost certainly true. Um, but also at the same time, Djokovic has a lot of responsibility for a lot of self-inflicted things he's done to himself to damage his own reputation and image and legacy um, from various anti-science things to the DQ, all these other things that he does. He's not. He's not without agency and responsibility for the stuff even if there are other factors at play that are unfair to him um so it's all interesting it's all it's all a super interesting uh, picture for him for sure speaking of pictures there were so many pictures <laughs> when he went to he, he, he hugged his daughter first who was sitting courtside i didn't realize that she was sitting there actually until he explained that after the press i thought it's brought her down very quickly yeah. when she was there and then he went up into his box as they all do now and the first person he hugged was matthew mcconaughey yeah and this this is like for me like the sort of like ultimate symbol of this absurd celebrification of the U.S. Open that reached obviously its peak during the women's final, especially maybe the men's final. Also, I think it was a little bit more in the women's. The number of celebrities, this hall of celebrities of this room was off the charts, starting with night one with the Obamas, whoever in charge at the USDA is doing the liaising for that, and it is an active effort for them. It's not that like they all just like buy tickets and show up. There are active efforts from the USDA to deal with agencies and tournaments and, and managers, and, and they actively pursue and engage with these sorts of people um, to be at their tournament to raise the profile of it. They did an incredible job to the point where it was almost distracting at some point, like how many A-listers were there in the stands of getting camera time. I just thought that was, that was yeah, remarkable to me. I don't even, I, I don't know if it's too much at a certain point. I don't think it is. I mean, who's going to say like, go home, Nicole Kidman, you're going to take away from the, the, the attention of this or whatever. And it's also cool seeing some of the tennis 
fans clearly who come like a lot of days who aren't just there to be seen once like you know timothy shalom but but the ones who were there repeatedly like your you know jimmy butler obviously most famously who's at this tournament constantly he he, he lived there he lived there for he two lived weeks. there even like laverne cox has been at the u.s open a lot she was at both finals she's been a lot of different places um there's other people i can name but i'm not gonna do a whole list but like they're yeah there's so many and just seeing even like with, they have to sit next to each other there's not even like room for their entourages they're like packed in okay you amanda Seyfried, had to sit next to rachel brosnahan and mindy kaling and who else was in that shot? Like Molly Ringwald was in the foreground of one, and it was all just a lot of stuff. Did you did you see any of them like behind the scenes or anything, or do you have any? What do you thought? Yeah, yeah. Like because this this to me, even by the same as the U.S. Open, was was like felt like an exponential growth of celebrity. Yeah, yeah this for, year for Because um, you know, I think back to 2015 with Serena's um, Grand Slam run, and yeah. and that there, there were a ton of celebrities coming out to see that one night, especially see Serena, the night where she played Venus in the quarters. Yeah. Yeah, and that felt different. That felt new, yeah. and and now it's everywhere. It was funny. We um, I was in the in like the player player area. They, they have like a player garden. Yeah. At the U.S. Open, and I was there with another journalist. It was quite quiet, and then suddenly there was a massive frenzy, <laughs> and we're like, why? You know, we're we're this is the player area. Why are people losing their minds? We go into the stadium, and it was Justin Bieber walking through, <laughs> and it just. Yeah, and, and and the the media the media seats um well some of the media seats are are, are really good right they're quite yeah. they're in like around the courtside boxes and so you can just see the celebrities you know behind us in front of us and yeah they were everywhere there are many I mean there are many that didn't even that I recognize that didn't even make it to the the big screen or anything like that yeah. so it does seem like it's become even more of an an, an event and one of those places to to be seen and. I guess that's a good good thing. I mean, <laughs> where does it, I'm, I'm curious, like, where does this come from? On some of it, almost feels like I don't know. I feel like a little bit. I, I fight these instincts because they're not helpful, but I almost feel like a little bit gatekeepy about it. Gatekeepy, like, why you, yeah. Why yeah. are you at my tennis event? Like, shalom alam. Yeah. You like you don't belong here. You don't go here. Like, leave this. Like, this is not your thing. Like, it should. It's just for clout now. When we're out there at qualies and doing this the whole way, and now they're showing up. Whatever. It, I, I don't believe any of that. What I just said. I'm just saying that this was for like. It is weird seeing something go like like sort of you know any sort of hipstery thing you like seeing it go so mainstream and tennis was never fully hipster in terms of a grand slam final especially but like yeah it's off the charts it's crazy how it's become like Coachella or the Met Gala or something to go to the U.S. Yeah. Open at this point it's really really yeah. and I'm sure at least for a while it's going to keep only getting bigger now that all these people saw the attention you get for being at the U.S. Open it's going to be like that next year and for the foreseeable future so. Yeah. It's, it, it just felt like a notable trend that really hit a, a new level yeah. this year. Especially when, I mean, to to, men, to, to mention the, the Timothy Chalamet, he basically, mm-hmm. I mean, him and Kylie Jenner used the Beyonce tour and the US Open to, you know, hard launch their relationship. Yeah. Which is, yeah. And, and speaking of gatekeeping, I do... Every year on, on, when on social media, people speak with such vigor and strength about a sport they watch yes. once once a year yes. it's so i i just it's it's crazy it's just in general like it's just crazy to me what how people can be you know be, be so loud and wrong basically and and lean into it so heavily and it's yeah and for that reason i mean i think i've said this before but if i were a tennis fan I would, I would not want any of this growth. I would want my sport to stay in its, you know, it exactly. under under a rock, you know. We, we talk about this. We talk about this for tennis, you know, in sort of 
people talk about what's good for tennis. Like, it's good for everybody in tennis. Like, is the sport getting bigger and richer a good thing? And, you know, should we be rooting for the success of the Netflix show to bring in lots of outsiders? My answer is no, especially because... Well, sorry. My answer is yes in the fact that they can all pre-order Naomi Osaka, available to pre-order um, now. And they talk <laughs> about things like this phenomenon happens several times to Naomi, actually. It is in the book of, of course, something yeah, happening yeah. to her and it becoming this huge cultural flashpoint. And all of a sudden, you say you're going to violate, you know, rule, you know, code violation G and the code of conduct. And Piers Morgan is writing columns about it all of a sudden. Like the amount of the, the way that tennis has its way of launching into cultural debates and stuff from these like arcane things and pay pay quality is one of them, which is not that arcane, but it's 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 still something that gets talked about in the culture and the cultural symbolism and whatever resonance tennis has. It's interesting that people's antenna and the culture are picking up on it more and more and more. And there have been people there earlier before, like your Anna Wintour's, who's been a tennis for years. I I don't know. I need to stop talking about that part, but yeah, it's it's something that is definitely a uh, a phenomenon that you can pre-order and read more about. Naomi Osaka, link in description. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop eventually, but not yet. No, great 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 stuff. Uh, it's impressive. It's impressive. <laughs> Thank you. And it's, and it's what you should be doing. Yeah, I'm not talking about impressive as the book or impressive as the plucking of the book, but either one I'll take I'll take credit for. Yeah, I on the crowds, this is actually the other point. They broke these attendance records, and the other thought I had when I was there for the first week is it was way too crowded at the US Open. It was notably not just more fantasy, but more people, period, and they were smashing these attendance records, and no one was happy about it who were actually on the grounds. No one's happy that there's no seats at these matches. No one's happy that there's longer lines at everything. And part of it had to do with there being fewer matches on Ash and the matches that were on Ash being short and uninteresting. And so that meant people who would have been sort of in the capacity been allocated to Ash were then fighting for seats on court four, five, six, whatever. Yeah, it just made, it was overcrowded and it was not a good trend. And if they're going to want to sustain that kind of numbers, they need to do something significant to to accommodate these people, um, which I don't think they really have the footprint to do on, those, on that site. So I thought it was too much. And... Tough if you can't get tickets, and tough that you know ground ground passes were reselling for a lot. That's not the responsibility to determine how much they're reselling for. I saw there was some pearl clutching about that, but who cares how much they're reselling for? It, it's the demand is up, and that's not always good for tennis fans. Uh, NCR remains yeah. free and available to you whenever you want, and again, reasonably priced uh, biography is also available. And, and speaking of things that are not are not reasonably priced, I, I had a honey juice for the first time. I still have not. How was yours? <laughs> It's twenty two dollars. I know, and it's a gl- gl- glorified lemonade. The cups yeah. are nice. I- I'll give you that, but okay. it's 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 lem- lemonade with a bit of vodka and some raspberry, you know, nonsense. It wasn't it wasn't melon. worth it. It was it wasn't famously and melon. Yeah, the melon, you know, balls. But it, 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 it wasn't worth it. It was overrated, as expected. I kind of worry, but I I do worry a little bit about with the celebrity side. The sort of increase, and there's been a little bit of this at smaller tournaments too, but the slam is, or Muta might be the most into it, leaning into it, it's sort of Instagramification of tennis tournament experiences. You know, if people are just going, it's certainly Indian Wells has this in a lot. Indian Wells is really into this, and this is actually, again, in the first chapter of the book, of, of sort of people going there to sort of be like seen and be seen and sort of getting, you know, going there for the gram and whatever and just making things look cool and experience and da 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 da. I, I, as someone who's more of the sort of person who's just shovelly there with my order of play, wanting to see Shea Suwe on a side court, like those those goals in mind don't always intersect and, and yeah. merge. So, yeah. And, and in general, tennis tournaments have definitely become more like festivals um, in the way that yeah. they're, just the way they're structured. And this is the, the, the New York Coachella in a way. So yeah. I guess it makes sense to see the celebrities there. Oh, that's a grim way to put it, but it's also, like, not wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One more thing I have in my notes that we mentioned, 
the, one of the great things about tennis is if you want to watch an athlete and you want to see them cry, you're almost certainly going to get to see them cry if they're a tennis player at some point. I was thinking I had never seen Medvedev cry before, before he was sort of tearing up in the trophy ceremony. I was almost wondering, like, who have I not seen cry at this point? I was thinking, Medvedev, I, have not, I don't know if I've seen this one. But Medvedev was certainly, like, teary, um, if not, like, fully bawling in that moment. We was talking about his wife or losing or disappointing himself, whatever. Any players you can think of who are big players you haven't seen cry in tennis? I was just thinking to myself, like, who hasn't cried? I don't know. I, I mean, um, if, if you'd asked me, like, three weeks ago, I would have said Alcaraz. But he cried at mm -hmm. in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and he didn't know why. He had no idea why he was crying. He said, <laughs> um, "Yeah, uh, yeah." Th 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 there are a lot of tears. Everybody we, cries. We, <laughs> as, nice. as 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 Gabinia Muguruza once said, "We are hearing the good and the bad." <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, if I could thank you in twenty-five languages for that ending, I would. Uh, but I'll just say thank you in English. Encourage y'all to follow Tamani uh, through the fall. And on the last pre-order plug of the US Open here, of, of for the book at VS Open here, I'll do now. Any other thoughts before I play out our final outro song? Um, yeah, I, I just, I think as, as a journalist, what, what I've been reflecting on is that one of the, I guess the, the, the great part, part, you know, one of the best parts of our job and, and, and I mean, why we do it is to, to, to see these players just um develop over yeah. the years and we, we saw that i mean both of us were saw that with naomi i mean that's that's part of the reason why he, you're, you're right you wrote that book right because you, you'd seen her from from when yeah. she was a, a kid until this you know cultural icon in a way and and we've seen the, the same i mean obviously i was reflecting on that having seen seen goff from that you know empty field in in roehampton yeah. in the first round of qualities to to where she is now and and yeah I don't, it's, it's just yeah it's it's quite rewarding i guess to, to see that evolution i feel like we almost didn't hit that note hard enough in the golf part a couple other little miscellaneous thoughts and i'll do a little data mark for the show like seeing her there and like how like grounded and how eloquent and thoughtful she already was as this child at 15 yeah at, at roehampton was incredible and the thing she was saying you know she she was talking about her Black History uh, posts on Instagram yeah. and stuff, and and really yeah. engaged with social issues stuff right away, which I know like took a back took a back some people like early on like oh why is this kid talking about politics and even like in her team and stuff like yeah, that yeah, was yeah. that was something that she was just so true to her and her parents were already engaged with that and just yeah super impressed with I I met the golf parents both they did a story of the New York Times on her qualifying when she drew Venus I think especially we we fast tracked that story to get out before the tournament but yeah that was a uh, a great great way to see her and see her develop and yeah so much so impressed by her by how it was pretty because it's so hard so many of the players who we think are predicted to do this and i was thinking you know and wishing him luck but it's not similar to felix ojali asim who i'm not saying we'll never get there but who's who was in a very similar boat of being a highly predicted junior and oh he's gonna win so many and being anointed so quickly and he's been struggling he's had a tough year and he's out of the top 10 and and sort of and, and sliding and it's just nothing is a given in this sport, right? And so it can be, I, I just want to, again, praise like what Coco did to deal with the weight of expectation yeah. in that way. It's just, it's just yeah. not easy. That pressure is a privilege, sure, but it's also just like a lot of pressure and a lot of weight. It doesn't help you win matches. It, if anything, gives you a target earlier on. And, and that's why we ended up with her talking about the people who, yeah. have, you know, took the, the caters and the criticism, the criticism she's received. We actually, I remember at the New York Times, this may be interesting to people, we had, because she was on the radar from the time she was, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 years old, and it's when I was already working at the sports department then, because she's that young, like, and so, 
are working you know as a freelance writer for them and and we talked like we're not going to write about it's she is too young we are not going to like profile a 12 year old we are not going to do this like no like it's just like not responsible and there's lots of if you look in the background there's lots of kids who've been profiled and done videos you know trans world sport kind of things about like yeah, these yeah. kids who don't make it i think they're really fascinating it's a group i did a whole ebook also on monique Vili, which is available now you don't have to pre-order that um and how those things can happen and coco had all that and more and and we stayed away from her because we were being cautious but then yeah she does turn out to back it up and it is that again i'm just super impressed with her one other thing on the just off your your 25 languages uh illusion which hopefully people got if you you should be getting that at this point i have a thought on the also watching the broadcasts again uh, for these finals if you're gonna have legal coaching in tennis with talking and you're gonna allow coaching that is not in english and not all tournaments have done this some tournaments like next gen and uts require the coaching be in english which is a different conversation to have but if you're going to have conversations allowed in any language which i'm fine with that being the rule i don't i don't especially i understand the english rule actually but i'm not fighting for it if you're going to do that you should have people who speak these languages on your broadcast teams do not have john McEnroe guessing what they're saying in serbian serbian is a language spoken by millions of people in the world you can hire someone for the afternoon for this grand slam final on your multi-million dollar production to say you know chime in three times and say what they were saying in Serbian or French or Russian or all these other non-niche languages. It's not like there's some like a lost tribe of the Andes <laughs> speaking some, uh, uh, you know, dead language who could possibly perceive this. It's like, no, these are, these are major, Serbian's not a major language per se, but it's a, well, it's wide enough spread. Lots of speakers are uh, bilingual with, or multilingual with English as well. You can get someone to translate this and give it to the viewers. Have, make this service possible. If you're going to make the coaching mic'd up and do this, have it be translated and understood that's, yeah. i think that's so basic and that goes for some tour events too but especially the grand slams if you're doing this the grand slams you should be doing it i feel very strongly about that it, it did feel like this u.s open and i guess it's this u.s hardcore swing in general north american hardcore swing sorry canadians mm -hmm. in, in general it, that the coaching seemed to be more more prominent definitely the open for sure yeah the, the rule has been it's, it's been a, it's been a few slams now um it just seemed more prominent in in these tournaments that i mean the mics are louder that the TV productions are, you know, airing. They're not just like showing replays of Juan Carlos Ferreira um, talking to Alcaraz, you know, at a change of ends or something. That 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 we're hearing it in real time. And I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of it to be honest. Yeah. I, I, it's 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 helpful in a way. It was it was helpful to see, for example. I mean, again, Ferreira. I think he's. You know, he, he's used them as, as much as anyone. And yeah. I think, and against Medvedev, he was essentially telling Alcaraz where to serve after every point to, and telling him to serve and volley. And, it's too much. But I think if tennis really wants to embrace coaching this much, then I, I would honestly prefer it to go back to how things were before COVID on the WTA with, with, play, with coaches coming on and actually having a conversation with the player mm. and having a dialogue and, and, and us being able to hear that. Rather than just these, you know, just random coaches barking from the stands and and it being, on one hand, informative and helpful, yeah. but on, on the other hand, distracting when you're trying to watch a tennis match. Or honestly, I loved the, the, the technology of the next-gen version of it, which was the headsets. We got crystal clear audio of every single word said, because so many times in the encore coaching in the WTA the mics were not great and you would, would only hear what the coach said, maybe not what the player said, or you get some of the conversation and not all. And also the next gen had the English thing, which also helped for comprehension of it, whatever. 
and I don't know, some for, for as a viewer, if it's purely done for viewership, I'm still not sure. I don't think they really said why they're doing the coaching thing. That's one of the things about it. Like, I don't think they've really given a compelling reason to me why they made this change, besides obviously the complaints about lack of uh, consistent enforcement. Pre-order Naomi Osaka now. I, you know, <laughs> whatever. It's enough on that. I am also interested on the box thing. Um, this goes actually, this is, I'm going to use this into segue to the final song. This thing that players do about yelling at their boxes, not normal behavior. I don't know when this became normal, but it's not normal. Like, stop it. You don't need to yell at people. And then Andy Murray maybe is most to blame for starting this trend. But I think it's I think it's too much. I don't think you need to. Curios was the worst of it, especially last year. Got sitting like courtside at some of his matches in Washington, hearing the things he would say. This is a constant stream of insults to his support team was horrible and really unsettling and unpleasant to be around, frankly. And I, yeah, I I don't get the trend. And to to be honest, I'd, I'd rather see that penalized than someone swear just swear saying fuck or breaking a or, racket or even, breaking yeah. a racket or, bre- or breaking a racket, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. You know, people like insulting their teams. Yeah, just co-violation, yeah. being a dick. Be nice to your mom <laughs> or whatever it is. You know, like just stop yelling at people in public. It's not nice. People do this yeah. in any other normal job. I understand it's on a normal job. And there's pressure. It's competition. Have you ever competed? You don't know the pressure. Like no, just be, you don't have to do this. Like they're great, great champions who never did this stuff. Imagine like for, for all of her like anger issues on court. Did Serena ever yell at her box? Absolutely not. It's not something she did. Like you don't have to no. do this. Anyway, channel it elsewhere. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's the subject of this final song by Dan Byrne to play us out. Thank you very much. Bye folks. See you next time. I need a box full of people to yell at when I mess up. I need a box full of folks at whom to scream. My coach and my physio, psychologist, and my girlfriend. My manager and my mother and dad What are you doing? Why do you just sit there yelling and clapping and whatever? I'm down here suffering, sweating and stuff Verdammt man, he booked voyage! I need a box full of people to scream at when I screw up I need a box full of folks at home to scream my coach and my physio, my psychologist and my girlfriend, my manager and my mother and dad. Mon Dieu, you are of no help at all. 